Now, I'm glad that you're here this morning. I'm glad that it cooled off finally because uh, someone said, hey, you don't need air conditioning when you buy a house in Maple Valley. Oh, oh it's overrated. <sighs> yeah. But the Lord grows us in many ways. Those watching online, welcome. Come next Sunday. There you go. There's my little plug. Let's, uh, let's get into God's Word today. We're starting our new series titled Next Growing a Culture of Discipleship. And so let's begin by reading the definition nice and loud. It's on your bulletin. It'll be on the screen of what we say at, at our church, the definition of discipleship. Here it goes. Ready? Nice and loud. Discipleship is a lifelong, relational, spirit-empowered pursuit to become more like Jesus. Excellent. Give yourselves a, a pat on the back. You did it. And now you're going to hear it over and over and over again. It's going to be drilled in like, will he please stop saying that? It's like those VBS songs that stuck in our minds. Remember? You guys, you guys remember. You don't remember the, the dance moves, but you remember the songs, right? Okay, we're going to get this into our minds. The discipleship is a lifelong, relational, spirit-empowered pursuit of becoming more like Jesus. Before Christians were called Christians, they were called disciples. A disciple is a, is a lifetime apprenticeship, fully dependent on Jesus. And discipleship is at the core of everything we do as a church. So we want to grow that. We want to see that nurtured and, and developed. And everything we do at Maple Valley Church is to grow disciples who make disciples. Disciple-making disciples. So every one of our ministries is designed... Underneath it in its DNA to cultivate disciple-making, being followers and students and apprentices of Jesus. Our missions, all of our missions work that you hear about, it's like fertilizing disciple-making. Our worship waters discipleship-making. Our children's ministry and our youth ministry, it's planting seeds and growing and tending those, those little seedlings to grow and mature into what? Disciples. The last order that Jesus gave before he ascended into heaven is known as what? The Great Commission, which was to go and make disciples of all the nations. So that's why we exist. If we stop making disciples, we might as well just close up, pack it up, and head home. Play Fortnite all summer. I don't know. Do whatever you want. But if we're not about making disciples, we're not about what Jesus calls us to do. A relationship with Jesus, that was for the youth, because they're the only ones who got what that reference was. <laughs> a relationship with Jesus only makes sense when we choose to become his disciples. So we want to grow that. We want to grow that culture that's been here for decades. We want to grow into this new century. And so in this six-part uh, series, we're going to study how Jesus made disciples. Why not go to the source, to the master? How did Jesus call people to himself, and make them disciples. Now, along the way, our director of discipleship, David Miles, is going to unwrap. He's been teasing it. We've been teasing all summer. Now you're going to unwrap and explain our plans for next, what's coming next in discipleship, the steps of journey, of the journey of faith. What's your next step in the journey of faith? Many of us know we're on track. Some of us aren't sure. Where, where do I go next? I've been part of the church for a long time. Some of you are brand new 
to our church. Some of you are coming back to faith. We're all wondering, or we should be wondering, what is my next step in the journey of faith? Where can I go to be equipped to serve, to become more like Jesus? And so we spend many, many months and many, many, many hours praying, thinking, talking, waiting on the Lord, studying, preparing for what's coming next. And so we're going to unroll that uh, as, we, as we proceed into the series. So let's look at how the master called his unlikely first disciples. Will you please stand and let's read John chapter 1, verse 35 to 51. Listen now to God's word. It's on the screen. The next day, John was there again. This is John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus said to the, said, saw them following and said, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you'll see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about the fourth hour of the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. And the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is when translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approach, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. And then he added, Very truly I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. God bless the reading of his holy word. Amen. Please be seated. Point number one, discipleship is a lifelong pursuit. Look at verses 35 to 37. John the Baptist's lifelong pursuit was to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of Jesus. When, when his public ministry got rolling, many thought that maybe this John the Baptist, maybe he was Elijah. Maybe he was Moses. Maybe he was the Christ. And John just said, no, no, no. But I'm the one preparing the way for his arrival. And in those uncertain days when uh, the people of Israel were under the oppression of Rome, 
John had a message. It was sort of like a five-alarm fire uh, alarm message of repentance. People were listening, and they were coming to John, and they were being baptized. And at least a few of them, a number of them, began to follow John the Baptist as his disciples. A disciple would be someone who hung out with and lived with and followed and mimicked the one that they were following. And so John the Baptist here early on, before Jesus comes on the public scene, has a following. Now, did you know that John the Baptist is a cousin to Jesus of Nazareth? Did you know this? Mary, her sister Elizabeth. Elizabeth was the mother of John the Baptist. So they were related. You can read in Luke chapter 1 how an angel said to John's father, Zechariah, he says to him, he's a priest serving in the temple, and he says, your son, he has this revelation, your son will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's not Elijah, but he will go with the, the spirit and the power and the intensity of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people. So here's Zachariah and Elizabeth. They are an elderly couple who couldn't have kids. An angel gives him this incredible vision that she's going to have a child, and this child will have a lifelong purpose of preparing the way for the Messiah. And notice it's not just this theology. He's, not, he's going to have prepare his way by talking about theology. It gets very practical, turning parents back to their children. It's children's ministry. He's going to go and do some children's ministry. Is that too much of a stretch? I don't think it is. And the disobedient to the wisdom of righteousness. He's going to call it how he sees it. He's going to prepare the way. That's in Luke chapter 1, if you want to read that on your own. And then Luke goes on to record that the angel Gabriel gives the vision to Mary. Mary, you are going to have a child. You are going to bear God's son. And so what does she do? She rushes to her cousin, Elizabeth. Wouldn't you? Like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? So she goes to Elizabeth, and it says here, Elizabeth now is pregnant with John, verse 41, when Mary enters the house. Elizabeth hasn't even laid eyes on her. Elizabeth, John is in vitro, right? In the womb. And what does Luke record? When Mary enters the house, the baby starts rocking and rolling. Whoa! We're talking a lifelong pursuit of Jesus. And this little preborn is rocking and rolling in his mother. And then it says that the Holy Spirit filled Elizabeth, came upon her in a powerful way, and she says, just blurts out a word of praise, blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. So John's entire life is dedicated to the moment we're just, we've just read. The arrival on the scene of the public ministry of Jesus the Christ. So when two of John's uh, disciples, we know one of them is Andrew. Who's the other one? Unnamed. But if you study the Gospel of John, you know that the other disciple who's never named is usually John the evangelist, the, the writer of it. He's there on the scene. Of course, he's recording what actually happened. When they see him, and this is the third time, the third day in a row that they've laid eyes on Jesus, John the Baptist says, there goes the Lamb of God. What are you waiting for? What are you standing around for, guys? Go. There goes the Lamb of God. 
John the Baptist did not want disciples. He didn't want a fan club. He wanted to prepare people to point them to the Christ. So he says, look, here he is, the Lamb of God. Here he is, the one with the answers to all of your questions. Here he is, the one who will address the burden of your soul. Here he is, the one your longing to ask questions of has arrived. Here he is, the one who will deal with your sin and your shame and your debilitating guilt. The Lamb of God is here. To call Jesus the Lamb of God means finally God is sending the final sacrifice to die in our place. The way the lambs, many countless lambs died in the Old Testament, this is L, Lamb with a capital L. John says, here he is. John the Baptist is a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's the final prophet of the Old Testament pointing to Christ. So the two hear him and they know what to do because John the Baptist has been very good at discipling, preparing them not to be a part of his ministry, not to cling to him, but to step out in faith. And he releases them to a discipleship that will last them their entire earthly life, and beyond. Discipleship is lifelong pursuit of Jesus. Our church has a rich, wonderful history of making disciples who make disciples. So we might wonder, why do we need something new? There's been so many changes already, and I get that. But the reason we need something new and refreshed is because God is always doing something new. And there's always more to learn about Jesus. It will take you your whole lifetime. Number two, you tracking with me so far? Okay. Discipleship is also a relational pursuit. Look at verses 38 and 39. Jesus knows they're following him. They're walking along. He's not, who's behind me? He knows that they're there. He spins around. He looks at them. And what does he ask them? What do you want? What do you want? James K.A. Smith uh, writes, this is the first and last question of discipleship. What do you want? Notice he doesn't ask, what do you believe? And, you know, if you're going to follow me, we need to make sure that you believe the right things. He, he doesn't say, what do you know? If you're going to follow me, you're going to be on my team. We need to make sure that you know certain things, you believe certain things, you affirm certain things. He doesn't go there. Where does he go? He goes to the heart. What do you want? You see, discipleship isn't first and foremost a head thing of, of knowing things. And I, well, I, I subscribe to these list of beliefs and doctrines, and, and so I guess I'm a, a Christian disciple. No, it's about your heart first and foremost. Not divorced from your head, but first and foremost, it's about your command center, your motives, your wiring, your will, a purpose for your life. What do you want? See, we are what we want. We are a whole bundle of many things and habits and things that we do unconsciously, pulling on our pants every morning, getting ready, but at the end of the day, it's its cumulative effect points to what you want. It points to what you 
love. Your wants, your longings, your loves are at the core of your identity. And the way we connect with Jesus relationally starts at the heart level. You want to get to know me relationally? You can know that I'm from Oakland, California. It's a little fact. You know my, my mom's sitting here in the eighth row. Those are facts. But you want to know me? Ask me about myself. And that's the secret of discipleship. It's a relational pursuit at the heart level. If you're taking notes, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We're so concerned about what we're thinking and, and, and how we answer the questions and do we get the, the right facts straight and we don't get deeper at the heart level. Scripture doesn't say guard your mind first and foremost. It says guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And so Jesus asked this question, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? You say it lots of different ways. And John's got, hey, I'm talking to you. Maybe a denier, I don't know. In the Gospel of John, every question, every comment in, in the Gospel of John has a very surface level and a very, very deep level. So on a surface level, he's literally asking uh, what do you want? But we know Jesus is asking a far deeper question. What do you seek? Why are you here? He's not interested in, in having people follow him who are seeking the wrong things. And Jesus isn't interested in having people follow him or seeking the right things for the wrong reasons. How do I know this? John 6, 26, Jesus answered some people that were excited to follow him. I mean, he could have had a crowd right away. It could have been like Pearl Jam concert. That was crazy. I was in downtown Seattle. Big mistake this week. Jesus could have filled a stadium like that. No problem. But he, he wheels around on a crowd following him. And he says, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. That's what you really want. You're materialistic. That's what you want. He's calling them out. And many of them walked away, but few came. So what do you want? Andrew and I think John, I don't think they have the foggiest idea. It's <laughs> a big question. Uh, they don't fully know, but, but, but they know it's got to be relational, don't they? Because they, their answer is, they want to be closer to him. Where are you staying? Where, where, where are you staying? It's, it's getting late. Think about it. It's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. The sun's going down. It's going to get dark. Where are you staying? We don't have any place to go. We're, we want to go with you. He says, come and see. Come and see. Again, in John, everything has a surface level and then deeper. When you see in John, if you do a study of John, look at light and darkness. We'll look at that next week. Look at seeing blindness Seeing, come, and see. That's, that's a little teaser. These two go and spend the night with Jesus. And what's the very next thing that happens? The next day, it's something relational. They don't even know what it means to be a disciple yet, but they do something relational. Andrew goes and, and talks to his brother, Simon, and Philip goes and talks to his brother, Nathaniel. These men are starting to figure out some things 
about Jesus and they get some things right and some things wrong. There are at least six titles of identification of Jesus. Let's pull that up on the screen. These verses uh, speak to at least six different titles of, of Jesus that John's going to unpack throughout his gospel. These uh, soon-to-be disciples are trying to make sense. The first one, let's pull that up. The first one we hear is Lamb of God. Who said Lamb of God in this text? John the Baptist. Oh, you're tracking with me. Yes. That's right. Lamb of God. And, and John knows that. But then read a little bit further, and John will question. He sends from prison, he sends some of his uh, holdover disciples to Jesus' disciples to say, um, are you sure you're the Lamb of God? Because the revolution hasn't started yet. So even John the Baptist, who dedicated his life to this pursuit, he's not sure about what it means to be the Lamb of God. They call him rabbi or teacher. Okay, that's fine. That's, that, that makes sense. How about Messiah or the Christ? They really know what they're saying when, they, when, they, when in verse 41, Andrew says to Simon, we found the Messiah. But what does he mean by Messiah? D does he mean the Messiah as we know the Messiah? Or does he mean a political leader? So one that will come like Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt? Is he thinking of Messiah who's going to come and lead us to independence from Rome? So they're getting things kind of right, kind of wrong. John's going to unpack that in his gospel. Son of God is another title. King of Israel is another title. At this early stage, Nathaniel is starting to detect some things. Have you ever been in a Bible study class and the leader asks a question and you answer it and you get it right, but you sort of say it in a question form, right? What, 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 uh, what does Nathaniel say of Jesus? He's the king of Israel? <laughs> that's kind of what's happening here and that's okay. At this early stage, they're trying to figure out relationally who is this incredible person and Jesus, we're going to come back to his title for himself, the son of man. We'll reserve that in a little bit. The point is this. It's a relational pursuit, getting to know Jesus. The most important qualification for Jesus' disciples is to know who he is. To be absolutely clear about who he is and what he has done. So Jesus chose unlikely men. Most of them were what? Fishermen? All of whom fail him at one time or another. Yet before he sends them out, they know who he is. They, they, they know him in here. They might not have all the, the clear answers, but they know him. See, this is good news, my friends. It means that God chooses people who weren't sure, but who wanted Jesus. This is good news. Because when you fail and when you are uncertain, God is still using you. You have that opportunity to share with a, a coworker uh, about your faith, and it's really embarrassing, and you might get in trouble, but you just kind of go there and say, I'm, I'm praying for you and your family. Let's see how that goes. I, I don't know how prayer works, but I just want to let you know that my family's praying for your family in this time of need. And, and you say it with just a, just a mustard seed amount of faith. And what does our, our Father in heaven say? Atta boy, atta girl, that's what I want you to do. Step out in faith. Number three, discipleship is a lifelong, relational, spirit-empowered pursuit. There are at least two promises in store for every disciple. 
transformation and revelation. And we'll see uh, it here uh, first in the disciples that are called by Jesus. Next week we'll see the story of Nicodemus coming at night to see Jesus. We'll see transformation and revelation. The week after that, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And then after that, Bodwell's preaching. <laughs> Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. We're going to see transformation and revelation. And this is a promise in store for every disciple. Andrew brings his brother Simon to meet Jesus. And look what happens. Jesus looks at, at Simon, and that name has several different translations. It could mean uh, one who listens. There's been another translation in Hebrew, something to do with uh, shifting reeds on water, kind of uncertainty. It says he looks at Jesus. Literally, the text says he looked through him. Jesus looked through him and says, Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, Petros, Peter, Rock. Jesus changes his name. He's, he's just met him. He changes his name. In the first century, your, your name spoke to your character, who you were. I mean, I'd probably, probably be super tall guy. I don't know what that would be in Aramaic, but that's probably what my name would be. That would stick. It captured something of the person's true identity. Jesus looks to Simon. He looks through him. And he transforms him by giving him a new name. He says, Simon, son of John, no longer will you be called by that name. I'm going to give you a new name. You're going to be my rock. That name, Cephas, it wasn't a given name. No one was named that uh, in the first century. It would have been like a nickname. It's like, you know what? I'm going to call you Rocky. You ever been part of a group, a team, and the coach or the leader of the band kind of gives you a nickname? Got some nicknames around here already. <laughs> he got a nickname. And it changed everything. Jesus is saying, I know you, Simon. I'm calling you to follow me, and I'm going to transform you into being my rock. Jesus gave him a new identity, and he gives you and me a new identity, really a true identity, who we are truly meant to be when we pursue him. It's the same thing. Time and time again, this transforming work of the Holy Spirit. The very beginning of John Calvin's Institutes, if you haven't read it, just pick it up. It's just, you know, just pick it up, a light evening reading. John Calvin, who, whose theology has greatly informed uh, our own in our, in our uh, Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, he begins the Institutes this way, quote, nearly all the wisdom we possess that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. True wisdom comes from above, and that involves knowing God and understanding yourself in light of this God who has revealed himself in nature and in Scripture. Listen, listen. We were never meant to understand ourselves and our world without reference to God. If you engage God, he will transform you. And secondly, he will, he will reveal things to you. That's the second promise of revelation. When Philip took Nathaniel to see Jesus, he starts popping off, right? Because they're from Bethsaida, and Jesus is from Nazareth. It would be like someone from 
Portland, kind of ripping on someone from Seattle. Does anything good come from there? But as he approaches, he's shocked when Jesus says to him, I know you. You are a true Israelite, a patriot, a straight shooter. He knows something of his character. And then Jesus supernaturally, when he says, how did you know this? He says, I saw you standing under the fig tree. Jesus knows, listen, Jesus knows what's inside of you. And he knows what's happening in your life. What a blessing to know that Jesus knows your situation. He knows if you're struggling today. He knows what hardship you're facing. He knows if you're happy or looking happy, but you're really bored. He knows if you're tempted. He knows if you're angry. He knows if there's something that you want to say to that person that lives under your roof. Oh, if I just said it, everything would fall apart. He knows it, and he loves you, and he's in it with you. And if you believe that he loves you, and if you believe that he's stronger than any force in the world, that fact that he knows he's with you, and he has all the resources you need to face it, is a great blessing. And that comes from discipleship. And so Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. When you pursue Jesus and take the next step, whatever that next step of faith is, to grow in your relationship, things about yourself, things about your world around you will be revealed. Things will start opening up. They open up in home group. They open up in Thursday morning Bible study, ladies Bible study. They open up at Panera on Mondays. We start looking at God's word. We pray for his guidance by the Holy Spirit. And the Lord starts revealing things about ourselves about our history and past, about our future, and about the world around us. We start to see things more clearly. Nathaniel is blown away. Look at verse 50 and 51. He says, you ain't seen nothing yet. You will see greater things, Jesus says to them. Very truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In John's gospel, heaven isn't a faraway place. This isn't way up there, far and far, far by and by that you can't reach. It is another dimension of reality, very close at hand, interacting with reality we can empirically see and touch. I know I'm speaking fast, but the clock is running. We gotta keep going. We gotta keep going. <laughs> Believe in Jesus and his power, and he will not only transform your life, he will open up more fully of what really is going on in the world. Aren't you saying when you look at your TV screen, what the heck is going on? through discipleship, through studying words written 2,000 years ago and 5,000 years ago, he opens the reality to us. You will see this heavenly reality open up so you can see things the way they really are. See what God is really doing in your life, in your adult child's life. What's really happening? What's really happening on the world stage when world leaders meet and discuss and when votes are counted. What's really going on? Look no further than, than the Gospel of John. Look to the book of Revelation, revealing what God is doing. And then Jesus quotes Genesis 28, 12, about a vision that Jacob had that God gave Jacob in the desert, a vision of a ladder with angels ascending and descending on this ladder, climbing up to God and, and back down the Lord gave Jacob this vision and Jacob called the place Bethel, the house or the temple of God. And Jacob set a stone there to worship. And centuries later, that dream became a reality. The latter is Jesus Christ. The Bethel, the final temple, the place that we are invited to dwell is Jesus Christ. 
who restores us, who moves us to worship, who equips us and then sends us out to do his work. Discipleship is a lifelong, relational, spirit-empowered, God-elected and beautiful pursuit to become more like Jesus. What does Jesus first say? He says, come and see. And then he says, follow me. And that's what happens in discipleship. Some of us just need that, that invitation because we're nervous about what's going what, to take to grow into that next step. And so he says, it's okay, come. Come and see. And others of us need to be challenged. Follow me. You know. You know what you're to do. Take the challenge. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, the vision from Daniel chapter 7. The one like the Son of Man who's coming to judge all of the kingdoms, who comes and judges and then ascends back to the Ancient of Days, the triumphant king. And at the throne of the Ancient of Days, he's given the privilege of sharing his triumph with those he calls the saints of the Most High. Who are the saints of the Most High? His disciples. Those that have grown up, who've learned to relate to him, who've been empowered, who've been transformed. You've been given everything you need to go and do ministry. A relationship with Jesus only makes sense when you choose to live as his disciple and follow his directive to be a disciple maker. Here's my last point. Here's how it happens in ordinary Christian life. It happens by volunteering to serve with a children's ministry. It happens when you tell your neighbor, I'm praying for you and your family. It happens when you invite someone to go for a walk or smile at a perfect stranger. Or when you take that two-minute elevator ride to share your testimony of how it changed your life, changed your family. It happens in the simplest of ways. And God somehow strings all these beautiful stories together for his big, great story. Meeting Jesus personally will change your life as it did with these five men. So friends, let's take that next step together. The next step, whatever it is, we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. What is the next step? The answer is come and see. Let's pray. Lord, you're inviting us to come and see what you're about, what you're doing. You're challenging some of us even now to follow you. Lord, I pray that wherever we are in our spiritual journey, that you would challenge us, encourage us, equip us, Lord, to take that next step of faith. Even this morning, Lord, we're going to be challenged to, to serve in one of our absolute top priority ministries, our children's ministry, what's happening here in our church, Lord, and the need, the cry for help is evident in our whole community. Families are in need. Children are in need. And I pray that you would inspire us Stir us to action. Prepare us, Lord, for the ministry you have in, uh, in our church in the coming new year of school. Amen.